rest of us, let's please open to 1 Peter chapter 4. Terry, if you could turn that down a little bit, please. Thanks. 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 19. <clears throat> I'm going to read verses 12 through 19 together, and then we'll come back and get into it. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, verse 13, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For, you, uh, for the Spirit of, of glory and of God rests on you, verse 15. If you suffer, it should not be as a meddler, uh, murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, criminal or even as a meddler, verse 16. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those of us who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Lord, we come before you and we ask that you would open our spiritual eyes, God, that we would see what you would have to say and hear what you have to say, and that our lives would be arranged accordingly. And so, Lord, we just give you our hearts and our, and our minds and our attention, God, right now. May you work in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we've studied First Peter together, church, uh, we've seen a reoccurring theme of suffering as a Christian. It's a reoccurring, uh, reoccurring theme as you suffer as a Christian. And as we've studied these, if you look back to the previous chapters, like in chapter 1, Peter takes great care to address the suffering of the churches. And he's writing, like in chapter 1, verse 6, Peter says, "...in all this you greatly rejoice." Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. A few verses later, in verse 11 of chapter 1, Peter's putting suffering in the context, speaking of the prophets predicting the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. Chapter 2, in verses 19, 20, and 21, 23, suffering is mentioned four times. He says in verse 19, for it is commendable that someone bears up under the pains of unjust suffering because they are conscience of God. Verse 20, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing what is wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should also follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Verse 23, and when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So in chapter 2, Peter speaks of suffering and the context for the right reasons, and also he speaks about Christ being our example, the forerunner of our suffering. In chapter 3, Peter mentions suffering three times, found in verses 13, 17, and 18. 
Verse 13, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Verse 17 and 18, for it is better if it is God's will, uh, if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the, righteousness, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And then now in chapter 4, where we are today, well, we've already read a little bit of it. Um, we've already taught on the first part last week, but suffering is mentioned six times, twice in verse 1, which says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. And suffering is also uh, mentioned four more times in the verses we're going to talk about today. So once again, welcome to church. We're going to talk about suffering. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, this is a good day for snow day, by the way. No, so we know that Peter's writing to a church that's suffering. And the context of the suffering is persecution for being Christians, for following Jesus, demonstrated by their holy and pure lives in a Christ-rejecting society, the holy and pure lives they lived that, was, that were marked by Love and good works, love towards one another, love towards their enemies, good works. They live lives in reverence to God. And so for being so Christ-like, they suffered. That was the reason for their suffering. They suffered internally in that they were denying themselves of the things that they, they want to do, their evil passions that warred within themselves. They suffered because they denied themselves. They chose to deny themselves pick up their cross, and follow Jesus. So they suffered internally. And they also suffered externally, externally at the hands of those pagans, which is what Peter uses there for non-believers, the ones who worshipped all these other false gods, that their lives radiated, radiated to the society around them. This society fought back. They didn't like the light, and so they suffered outwardly. And as I mentioned when we began our study of First Peter, I don't know how long ago, um, it was likely written just before or after 64 AD when the Roman Emperor Nero, uh, he burned Rome to the ground because he wanted to remodel it. Like he, he just didn't go through the city bureaucracy, he just burned it to the ground. And what was happening, and Peter's most likely, and by the way, after he burns it to the ground, then he blames Christians for starting it, which which began to start off horrible persecution. It's interesting, the historian uh, and senator uh, Tacitus, in his works, uh, the Annals uh, in section 15.44, if you're interested in that, but it describes b briefly what is happening. He's a senator at the time, he's a politician, he's a historian, he's writing kind of in, the, in that day, in that context, and he's writing about what happened uh, after Nero burns Rome. He says, but all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and all the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. And so in order to remodel Rome, Nero burned it to the ground. And because people started to blame him, he started to bribe people. He started to pay people off and he started to make all these offerings to God. And, and, but it just didn't take they, they were very, very upset. 
that he would go ahead and take this power into his own hands and do these things. They knew that he, had, he was behind it. And because that didn't work, Tacitus goes on to say, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called the Christians, C-H-R-E-S-T-I-A-N-S, by the populace. And so he, he took the group that was mutually hated in society and he fastened the blame on them and began to do horrible things. They were already hated. The church was hated for their abominations and and this is probably because they misunderstood what the sacraments were, you know, communion, thinking that it was cannibalism. But there was great hatred for the church because they regarded Jesus as Lord, not Caesar. And so when they rejected the Roman gods, the pantheon of gods, they, they rejected all this, you know, lasciviousness, all the craziness associated with that worship. They lived whole and whole and pure uh, lives, holy and pure lives before the people, there was a light that was radiating from them and they were rejected and they were hated because of their purity. Tacitus goes on to describe what happened to them. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination. When the day had expired, they would dip them in oil and light them to light up. That was their streetlights in Rome. That's what happened to our brothers and sisters that Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to a church that is suffering greatly because they are Christians. It's important to know why they are suffering. Because they're Christians. And as Peter begins to wrap up his first letter, he says to them, after saying, talking about suffering in this context, the whole letter, he says in verse 12, Dear friends, dear beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The first thing that Peter is seeking to communicate to the church is that suffering for Christ is to be expected. Suffering for Christ is to be expected. Peter says, do not be surprised about the fiery things that you're facing. It's expected. And that word surprised is, is, is used just a few verses before, but it's used to describe the reaction of non-believers in, in, in believers' lack of participation in their wild living. If you remember that in verse 4, Peter says, they're surprised you don't join with them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuses on you. So the idea is of, of, um, of surprise is it's a stranger. It's a strange concept. It's a foreign idea. It's something totally out of place. They were totally shocked that you won't in, engage in what is normal society, normal evil living. Peter uses that same word here to describe our shock when we experience persecution. They're shocked. Why am I going through this? Why am I suffering? How many of you have asked that question? A 
I thought if I followed Christ, God would reduce my suffering. I thought if I followed Jesus, he would care for me and my suffering would be reduced. How many of you had that logical thought? Or is it just me? And that's a dangerous and false belief that is taught today. And Peter will go on in 2 Peter to talk about how teachers will go ahead and preach that to you because they're going to take advantage of you. That is not true. You will suffer if you follow Jesus. And Jesus said many would fall away when they began to suffer. Matthew 13, the parable of the seed, verse 20. It says, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word at once and receives it with joy. Yeah, the gospel, Jesus, love it. But since they had no root, they last only a short time when trouble or persecution comes because of the word. They quickly fall away. And Peter reminds the church this is to be expected in a church that is alive. In a church that is alive. In a church that has repented, at a church that denies themselves, that walks in holiness, suffering is a promise to us. To a church that picks up their cross and follows Jesus. Now, here's the thing, here's, here's the thing, everybody. If as a Christian you conceal your virtue, if as a Christian you conceal your zeal, if as a Christian you conceal the cross, The world is not going to persecute you. They're not. There's nothing to persecute. There's no light. There's no salt. There's no truth. And it's not like we're going to pick a fight. That's not, how, that's not what we should be about at all. We're not picking fights. We're not overthrowing governments. We're following Jesus. And as we love him, our love for him is going to supersede our love for the world. And it's going to grate against society, and society is going to react. John 15, 19, Jesus said to his disciples, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But if you live as Christ lived. If, if, you li if we live by the Spirit in His power, if we live obedient, holy lives, which I'm longing for in my own life to a greater degree. So I'm not sitting here saying, this is where I am, come up. I wish that were true, and I'm praying that more and more every day. And, and I see God working in my heart, but I'm praying for us as a church that this would be our aim. God, more of me. Take hold every aspect of of my life, of our lives. Make us holy and pleasing to you, separated apart for your work. If that's where we are, if that's who we've become, we're going to be persecuted. The second half of John 15, 19 says, as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you, because you're mine you follow me, because you mimic me. If you crawl in Matthew chapter 5, how many of you know the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount? He starts the whole Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Jesus is speaking. You guys got everybody on a mountainside. He starts talking to me. Blessed are, the more, are those who mourn, 
Well, actually, starts out in verse, verse 3. says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right? And then verses 4 and 5, blessed are those who are mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And it keeps going. It keep, there's a progression that's going on there. And guess where the end of the rainbow leads? Jesus is building. Guess where he's built, building up to? Man, you've got your poor in spirit, and, and you're laying down your, you know, your heart before the Lord. You've got nothing, so the Lord comes and fills you. And now you mourn over your sin, and you're comforted by the Holy Spirit. You're meek. And there's just pro- there's this progression that happens in the life of a believer as you become more and more and more like Christ. And guess, guess where verse 10 leads us? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of your righteousness. His righteousness in us, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You're blessed when that happens, church, because of Christ. Rejoice and be glad, verse 12, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And Jesus would go, and Peter would go on to say, and that's the way they persecuted Christ before you. So you see, as a born-again believer becomes more like Christ, as Christ's righteousness is manifested in our lives, so is the reaction to that righteousness from the world around us. So just as Christ was rejected and suffered, so do we. And Peter says, expect it, expect the fiery ordeal. And some of your translations uh, fiery trials. How many of you have fiery trials in there? Fiery ordeals. Totally. That's, that's what we're talking about. Uh, pyrosis is the, is the Greek word that describes the fire, like a pyromaniac. But pyrosis, that's what we face. And the word pyrosis means, it's, it means a burning, a refining. It's that context where, where fine metal is put under immense heat to take out the unclean elements of it and to leave a pure, refined metal that is precious. Yeah? How many of you like that pure 24, whatever it is, gold? I mean, (laughs) people are like, well, you know. Yeah, as opposed to stuff that's got stuff in it. It's like you you want it purified. Well, so does God. Amen? God wants it purified. Well, how does that happen? Through the fire. And it's through the fire we find out whether we are pure gold or fool's gold. <clears throat> and that's what's going on when a, when a Christian suffers for Christ. It's a purifying. It's a suffering allowed by God to test you, to test me. Peter says to prove you is the idea. And the, and the idea is that metal being refined. And by the way, the testing is not for God. He's not like going, again, he's not lacking any knowledge about the state of our hearts. He's not lacking anything. But who's lacking the understanding? Me. Am I in the faith? Am I out of faith? How do I know I'm in the faith? Unless I'm tested, I don't know where I stand, what's going on. Do I, in trials, do I obey the Lord or do I abandon the Lord? The trials don't make me do stuff. They reveal who I am. They reveal 
what's going on in our hearts, what we do. And so Peter says to his readers and those who are experiencing these difficult rejections, don't think that something strange happening to you. Don't be wondering why this is happening. And I know we, we often wonder why. Know that God is allowing this. The suffering is testing you, refining you, revealing to you the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold. Don't freak out. Write that one down. Don't freak out. There's a purpose. Verse 13, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. As I, as I mentioned at the beginning, Peter has been linking their suffering all through this letter to Christ's suffering. It has a context. Suffering has a context if it is for Christ. He keeps saying Christ suffered and was glorified. Now you suffered and you will be glorified. That's the link there. And that perspective is what gives a Christian joy in the midst of suffering. It's not the pain of it. It's what it produces. And James talks about that. It's what the, what the trials and the pain produce at the end is, is the joy. For the joy set before him, he endured. And that perspective gives us joy, knowing that as we suffer, we are participating in the sufferings of Christ. And just as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, which are excruciating, that's where that word comes from, crucifix. Excruciating. And they're soul-crushing. And they are the deepest trials at times. You, just as you experience that, as you're linked with Christ in that pain, you're also linked with Him in what? His glory. You're linked with Him in His glory. Which one lasts longer? Yes, great answer. Here's where faith comes in. Do you believe that? If you believe that, it'll be manifested in joy. Isn't that weird? There's a link between our faith and our attitude in suffering. It's hard to see there in the English, but the word for participate, as we participate, is the word koinonia, which is the word for fellowship. How many of your Bible say fellowship, the fellowship of the suffering? Some of you might have that translation. The fellowship. That word for fellowship, it's a profound word. It's a powerful word. It, it isn't a word to describe a casual acquaintance. It's a deep and complementary relationship. That's the word he's using there. So, so much so that the word is used to describe um, relations between a husband and wife. The idea of fellowship from a New Testament sense is used to describe a deep intimacy where one is giving to the other out of love, out of what, out of according to what they need. They're sharing at the deepest level. 
like in Acts 2.42, where the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. They devoted themselves to that. Why would they devote themselves to that? Fellowship is deep and profound, like we, many of you experience at Life Group. And so in Christ, we experience fellowship. We experience koinonia with Christ and with one another as we devote ourselves to each other so that we have a deep bond where love is demonstrated, where we receive and give to on a deep level with one another. That's what Christ desires. That's what Christ designed for the body. Paul, somewhere in Romans, I think it's one, he says, Paul says, I long to be with you. Writing to those in Rome, he says, I long to be with you so that I can give you some kind of, uh, can impart a spiritual gift to you. And then he, because he doesn't have like an edit button, he, he just keeps, he goes, not just that I can give you something, but that we might be mutually edified, that you might give something to me, the Apostle Paul says. I'm in need of you just as you're in need of me. We have fellowship to have happen. I've got something that God has given me. Peter's already talked about it, the grace in its various forms, to, to give to you. And I need the same thing out of you. I need you. There's a fellowship that goes on, a koinonia that goes on. This is what marriage is supposed to be about. This is what the church is supposed to be about. Peter uses that word to describe the intimacy and suffering that we have in Christ. We share in his suffering. As he suffers, we suffer. That's a how did he suffer? He was brutally treated. He was horrifically rejected. Despised and rejected. And here's the joy. As we now willingly participate in his suffering, as we willingly fellowship with him in his suffering, so we will be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We share in his suffering now, but we will also share in his glory. Do you see that, church? We're going to share in the joy that is coming to the degree that we suffer now. And some verse, a verse came to mind when I was thinking of that, that Hebrews 11.35, which says, women received back their dead, raised to life again, and there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. What is that? That seems morbid. Like weirdos, their mind was so convinced that their suffering now equaled glory then, a greater degree of glory, that they said, I'd rather stay chained and I'd rather stay tortured. I'd rather be an example for Christ now because what is coming is surpassing anything that we're going to deal with right now. It is so overwhelmingly, it's like a tidal wave in one of those movies. It'll sweep over the city of, of your past and the glory will just radiate from your life. God will, will, he will be true to his promise. Fellowship in his suffering, church, 
Be willing to step into it. We're not picking fights. Don't be afraid of the cross. Don't despise. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Lean into him. And let your joy overflow as you look forward to the promise that Christ is sure to give you when he shouts and you, you come up to him. I love that. To participate in the fellowship of his suffering translates to greater joy at his return. And so Peter says, rejoice in your suffering. And as Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 6-7, all this you greatly rejoice, though for now, though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. He minimizes it. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in the praise and glory of God when Jesus Christ is revealed. Verse 14, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I know we're worried about what people say about us. Listen, if you're living a godly life, you're not being an instigator, you're just living a holy life and people start to persecute you because you radiate Christ. They start talking about you and start doing those things. You're blessed. You're blessed. The spirit and glory of God rests upon you. And it makes me think of Stephen. In Acts chapter 6, he's about to be martyred. The religious leaders are setting him up. This is a guy who was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. He was one of the guys waiting tables. He wasn't one of the big deals. He just loved Jesus, and Jesus overtook his life. And as the Lord was present upon him, he began to impact the society around him. They got mad because he was proclaiming Christ everywhere. And so they set up false witnesses in Acts chapter 6. They started to do all these things to the place where Stephen had to stand before their, the, the tribunal, basically, the Sanhedrin, the, the, you know, the trial uh, of all the religious leaders are standing there. They started to persecute him. And it says that in verse 15 of Acts 6, it says, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. <laughs> he just sat there. Why? What was happening? I think this is what Peter's talking about when it says the spirit and glory of God was, will rest upon you. I think this is kind of a link, an, an example of that. And, and if you were insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory if God rests on, upon you, that's acceptable suffering to God. Now, Peter goes on, verse 15, says, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Now, Peter has to tell them that not everybody who suffers gets a trophy. And the same thing needs to be explained today. And I would add suffering because of self-inflicted wounds. You know, if we're being foolish, we can't sit here and turn around and say, oh, I'm suffering for Christ. No, you're suffering because a man will reap what he sows. God will not be mocked. This is a different kind of suffering. This is suffering for Jesus, for his name, because of 
Christ in you. And so he says, hey, murderers and thieves don't get trophies. That's not what's, what I'm talking about. Obviously, those are, those are obviously, obvious categories of sin. Don't think, you know, hey, I'm a Christian and I murdered someone or stole something and now I'm suffering in prison for the Lord. No, you're not. You're suffering because you murdered someone and you stole something and you're getting what you deserve. That's justice. Don't do that. Peter has to lead us out. Now, Middle East gets kind of crazy back then, right? People take Christianity to extreme. They, they're going to go kill someone for Jesus because they're, what? They're messing with them. They're going to go take stuff back. We're going to make things right or whatever it might be. And I think that's kind of the context of what's going on. Peter draws clear lines. And then Peter gives a broader uh, word. He just says, don't be a criminal of any kind. You know, it's just like parents. Like, just don't do anything. Don't breathe. Stop it. <laughs> Anybody else know what I'm talking about? <laughs> All the parents said, amen. That's what Peter said. Just none of that. And I think we're looking for, we sometimes do that. We're like, well, he didn't say I couldn't, you know. It's like, just stop. None of it. And that's what he's doing. And then he goes on and he says, or even as a meddler, don't even meddle. And really, that word at face value seems like people getting into other people's business. And that is the general sense of what that means. And we're warned about being busybodies, you know, getting into other people's stuff and all that kind of stuff in, in like 2 Thessalonians 3 and 1 Timothy 5. But the word in the Greek for meddler is one, it's only used one time here in 1 Peter, and it's elatri episkopos. Now, you should recognize the word episkopos, which means ruler, right? It means overseer. And so it means taking sub- supervision over affairs pertaining to others. Don't do that. And from the context, it, it, it can mean live a quiet life. Don't get into affairs that don't belong to you, that God hasn't given you. Um, you know, at work, in your home, at church, in government, stay in your lane. Don't be a disruptor. You know, don't start riots in the name of Jesus. Amen. Don't try to redefine your work environment by insisting that they make everything reflect Christian values when it's a pagan, godless place. You guys need to, you know, have a poster of Christ on the wall. It's like, just knock it off. Don't do that. Now, if it's a Christian institution, yeah, hold them to account. They're sitting there claiming to be Christ and they're going crazy. It's like, sure, but do it in gentleness and respect, right? But don't be a meddler, and then when they actually, when the government or whoever it is starts to, like, notice you because you're messing with them in a, in a, you're trying to undermine them, subvert them, not just be light, when they take notice of you and they come back at you, don't sit there and go, oh, I'm suffering for Christ. No, you're meddling. Stop it. Don't do that. Don't be a meddler of any kind. It's unacceptable to God. It's not the right kind of suffering. Don't subvert authority. Submit and model Christ. Paul said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. Don't take it out of context. Yes, you share Christ with people, but you're not subverting governments. You're not taking down your business that you work for. Does that make sense? Model Christ, don't meddle Christ. 
That's my little slogan. It's mine. Oh, mark there. Verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, verse 16, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And that's what we do. We bear the name of Christ. We don't bear the name of Christ Community Fellowship, but we represent Christ, right? We bear that name. We're bo- we're, we were baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does the name of mean? How many of you go, hey, don't mess with our family name. Don't, you know, you, you've, have you heard that? Some of your parents told you, don't make our reputation horrible on this earth because your family's supposed to kind of represent certain values and, and what you stand for. And that's the idea about taking the name of the Lord God in vain. It's not saying GD. It's living GD. Right? It's living in a way that doesn't reflect who he is in his kingdom. That's what taking the name of the Lord in vain means. Like, we represent him. If you bear the name of Christ upon you, live it out, right? If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name. If you're being persecuted for the right reasons, praise the Lord. We see examples of that in in Acts, where the apostles were beaten or they were Uh, imprisoned, whatever it is, and the response was joy. Wow, that I'm worthy to suffer, that I actually am worthy to suffer, that my life is actually shining your light enough to where I'm getting resistance. And you're quite, you know if you're on the right track as a church and as an individual, if you have resistance in your life, not because you're a meddler, but because you're shining Jesus in the culture around you. Verse 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Peter's saying the judgment of God starts at his own house. And if we're experiencing the fiery, refining trials of a loving father who is dealing with sin in his church and a lack of holiness, which he judges accordingly, if that leads to a cleansing within the church, if the fiery ordeals re, re, uh, end in a refining, if his judgment upon us in the sense of refinement ends in a cleansing and a purifying, what happens to the people who aren't a part of that process who end in condemnation? He's saying if we're going through the fiery trials, if we're being refined, if we are going through hardships for the name of Jesus and and God's eradicating sin out of our life and we're being purified and all those things, if we're in that thing and at the end the righteous are barely saved, we're saved through that process. I'll have to explain that in just a second. What about those who are ungodly, aren't even there? They're just going to have the condemnation and the total eternal judgment of God. What's going to happen to them? That's what he's saying there. And so, to clarify, while we have been justified, so God judges our sin. He has judged our sin. He is judging our sin, so to speak. But he, to clarify, we have been justified. And it's important to know that doctrine for Christians. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you keep reading, it goes, for those who do not walk according to what? The flesh. So when you walk according to the flesh, what's a loving father going to do? He's going to purify you. He's going to discipline you. Amen. Because he loves you. Because you're his. 
So there's a judging that happens within the church. And so while we have been justified, we've been declared innocent because of Christ's work on our behalf, we're still being sanctified. And I, and I teach about this a lot, I share it. That's removing sin's power over our daily lives so that we become more like Christ every day in an increasing measure so that we are more obedient to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And this means that God is going to judge our sin and chasten us and discipline us, which results in cleansing us. And so God judges our sin in that sense, in the sense that we are cleansed by His chastening and we're not condemned. We don't end up condemned. Praise the Lord. So our judgment leads to cleansing, not condemnation in Christ. Praise the Lord. However, What's going to happen to those who have not been justified, who do not have forgiveness in Christ? They're just facing condemnation. They're just facing eternal judgment. Their sins have not been paid for. And so verse 18, if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The believer is brought to that final salvation Salvation is a three-part deal. It's, a one de- it's, it's got one whole idea with three parts. Justified, sanctified, glorified. It's, it's toilsome. Christ saves you, and then that salvation, your position is worked out in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then He glorifies you. It's toilsome, it's difficult, it's the cross, it's self-denial, it's a life of saying, your will, not my will, oh, Lord, forgive me, let's go again, you know? That's what it is. It's a fiery, refining process that God graciously allows us to undergo until the day we have salvation in the fullest sense, and until the day when we are actually saved from the presence of sin. Praise the Lord. And so that's the idea of that judgment that begins at the house of the Lord in that sense. So then, if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what's going to happen to the ungodly? So Peter's saying, listen, this has all got a purpose. Stay focused. You're being refined. The Lord's got His hand on you. Don't think that this is something that's strange happened. Keep focusing on Christ. So then, verse 19 Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Don't let suffering in your life stop you from doing good. So if God uses a circumstance to test you, what do you think the enemy is going to use that for? To tempt you. And that is why that word means either tempting or testing, depending on the context. It's the same word. Where God seeks to test you, the enemy will seek to tempt you. An opportunity to glorify God is an opportunity to deny God. And so you have that situation going on in your life. And so I'm praying that we would fellowship with Jesus more this year in his suffering. Lean into it, church. It's okay. It's okay. He's got you. Give it up. Lean in. Embrace the cross and you'll find joy in your life. And I'm praying that we would have greater joy this year as we experience greater suffering. I know that sounds weird. I'm not saying 
go hurt yourself. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying let's deny ourselves. Let's let the Lord live as we love. And what comes, comes. Knowing that it'll, it'll all be worth it as we commit ourselves to our faithful creator. Last verse, Romans 8, 17 through 18. This is Paul speaking. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. How awesome. If indeed we share in his sufferings. In order that we may also share in his what? In his glory. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. If Indeed, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, Paul says. And then he goes on about suffering and about nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he goes on in the grade eight, chapter eight of Romans. So, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. The Spirit, hopefully, is speaking to your heart this morning about leaning into him. And I'm praying that he would encourage your heart this morning. And, and we just need, how many of you just need prayer in areas? Lean into one another and, and depend upon one another and pray for one another. That's an act of love. And this is a difficult circumstance. Or perhaps you don't have an unbearing, a bearing on something. Perhaps you're going... I don't know if this is like self-inflicted suffering or let's give me some perspective, Lord. And, and the body comes around you and starts to pray for you and help you in these areas and you start to gain a perspective and wisdom in an area and you get encouraged and built up. And that's my, that's my heart for you this year. Lean into the pain and let the Lord bring the joy. It's all gonna be worth it, amen? Lord God, I just wanna thank you for this church. I want to thank you for this body and I want to thank you for this message. Thank you for showing us the path of suffering, Lord. Thank you for leading us down that and for the joy that was set before you endured all that you did. May we have our heart and our minds firmly established with you above all principalities and all powers. There you sit and we are seated with you in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1 says. May you have our heart today. And may you supersede all the circumstances, Lord. And Lord, give us that joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. So, Lord, I'm asking for a measure of joy upon this group. There would just be joy, unexplainable, pure joy from your throne. Please, Father, and give us opportunities to fellowship with you this year. In the name of Jesus, amen.